All right. Happy Friday, everyone, and welcome to another episode of Learning Tech Talks, where we are exploring the landscape of learning technology while cutting through the fluff to answer the questions you need answered to make the right decisions when building your digital learning ecosystem. I'm excited. Today, I'm joined by Charles Smith. He's the founder of Amplifier, and we're going to be dig digging into some of the commonly held myths about the way learning really happens while highlighting some of the ways they've designed their product to address them. So for those of you joining us live, be sure to give us a thumbs up, share the post, tag in someone who would benefit from the conversation, and in the comments, let us know where you're joining from. So I am joining from the ever-beautiful Waukesha, Wisconsin, and Charles, <laughs> I forgot to ask you, where, where are you joining from? I am in, uh, good morning, Christopher, I am in um, Encinitas, California, it's on the Southern California, okay. it's a little north of San Diego, uh, and it's been uh, raining here since Sunday, nonstop. Okay. Very odd for Southern California. And I was going to say that's not like a normal weather pattern for you. I, I have to imagine. No, we have, we've been having these, uh, what are called atmospheric rivers, uh, for the last, all of March and so far all of April. And they, they come off the equator and they kind of slant up from the rain band that goes around the planet at the equator. And they come into Mexico or California and they bring, uh, a lot of rain. <clears throat> it's thought that a really good, uh, this is a strange little aside, but it's super interesting if you like the weather at all, as I do. Uh, an atmospheric river can hold about five Amazons worth of water. Wow. An extraordinary amount of water. And uh, uh, it can be a dangerous thing, of course. Okay. <laughs> that's, a, that's something. So, um, <laughs> all right. Um, the fact kind of threw me for a loop. So yeah, good. And, we're off yeah, to a good start. <laughs> I know we're off to a good start. You, you're throwing a, throwing a thing in my rhythm. All right. So the other question, and I don't know if you've had a chance to, to think, I know you, I pulled an audible on you and, and you didn't have an answer yet. So if I need to go first, I can. Um, but for those of you watching, you can also comment in on this. So on the topic that's relevant to what we're talking about today, what is something you thought you knew, you swore you knew it only to find out later you were wrong. Did you? Did yeah, you yet? I, I did. Okay, I did. great. Yeah. You hate, of course, admitting that there was ever anything that you really knew, you know, uh, with some certainty and were wrong. But um, I built um, a pool uh, on my property a couple of years ago. And I, I, um, I know a little meteorology, as you just discovered, yeah. and I know quite a bit of geology. It's one of my passions is to is to study geology. And uh, I thought I knew the geology of my property pretty well and that I could just dig that pool with no problem. It's just sediment here. It should be easy to dig out. And about three feet down, I hit something that is like a little harder than cement. <laughs> and uh, the cost of the pool went insane from there. I mean, it was just jackhammed for three weeks to try and get through this cement. So my confidence was, uh, uh, you know, it was shaken. Okay. So you, you're like, I can do this. I can build a pool. I'll just dig it. And then surprise, you found something that was under that you were not yeah. expecting. Yeah. Okay. So I, I shared mine backstage before we went live, but I'll, I'll share it again uh, because I think it might surprise a lot of people. So uh, the song, We Are the Champions by Queen, <laughs> Right. Every time I would think of it or sing it, you know, in the shower or wherever, I always swore at the end of it, they say of the world. Right. We are the champions of the world. And then I don't remember where, but I was I saw that that was a commonly held myth that people think that's how it ends. And I and I had to listen to the song about 12 times before I went. It ends with we are the champions. 
and that's it. And I went, I, I just, it, it seems like a silly thing to just blow your mind, but, but it was definitely one that threw me for a loop, similar to your meteorology comment in the Amazon quantities of, of rain, yeah. same type of thing. Well, the atmospheric river thing's fascinating. And of course, it's not the topic for today, but there was a one that came into California in the 1860s that literally, you know what the Central Valley is? It goes yeah. from like Sacramento, you know, kind of down to just north of Los Angeles. That was a lake that was 300 miles long, 50 miles wide and 20 feet deep because the two rivers that drain the Central Valley could not drain it fast enough with five Amazons hitting the Sierra Nevada oh, yeah. mountains. So that hasn't happened since. And we really do not want that to happen again. No. There's a lot of people that are there now that weren't there then. So it would be it would be um, the headlines definitely for quite a while. It would. It would. All right. So let's let's talk into right. So we've, we've had our fun intros now. Let's get into yep. some of the cognitive science behind this and the psychology. Um, but but before we do that, so you were the founder of Amplifier. Talk a little bit, you know, just so people who may not be familiar with Amplifier or who, who have heard of it, but maybe don't know a lot. Tell me a little bit about the journey there or what Amplifier is. Yeah. Um, and do you mind if I we just start at even a higher level? Yeah, Christopher? go for it. And, the, the ultimate level to start, and I love to talk about Amplifier and, and the details uh, behind the platform, but at the, at the highest level, philosophically, about, you know, kind of the learning, training, teaching profession that we're all in, and I'm sure your viewers are, are in there somewhere, as you and I are, um, it is, I guess you start at this high level to think about what its effect is on the world, what good is training and teaching and learning. And it, it, in a way, it's at the core of everything that we hold near and dear. You know, in this society, um, it's a very wealthy, as surely the United States and Europe, what, what you call Western civilization, very wealthy. Uh, you know, if you brought one of your ancestors from the Middle Ages up to the present, <clears throat> he or she would be utterly astonished by the technology that's around us. It would look like complete magic to that person. We would be like gods. And um, the thing that has made that all possible, that huge transition, and you know, we don't really notice this, we're born into a world that has got some tech around, you know, even when I was born, as uh, yeah, I'm in my 60s now, but TVs existed and radios existed. The internet didn't exist yet, but some very serious technological stuff did. That is magic. And, and if you're born into it, you might not notice how incredible the time that we live in actually is. Uh, and what's at the core of that? I, I gave you one slide that, that yeah. shows kind of the classic economic, uh, uh, thing that's called the circular flow model of the economy. It's just a fun one to look at uh, for a second, because this is this is the classic macroeconomic model, and um, you know it's there's just two actors in this thing. There's individuals, people uh, like everybody, like you and me, and everybody listening, and businesses, organizations that have some product or service. And at the top, those organizations send goods and services to people. People buy those uh, goods and services with money. That's the expenditures line. Uh, businesses pay wages to people and people offer up their labor to businesses for um, for those wages. That is the classic circular flow. But at the at, and it's responsible for this amazing economy that we have uh, at the core of it, though, is know how. I had this wonderful professor when I went to the University of Colorado in um, in uh, in Boulder 
in the 70s, a guy named Kenneth Boulding. And Kenneth Boulding uh, was a man ahead of his time to a great extent. And he kind of proved out this model as a, as a trained economist that knowledge is really at the center. And if, if you and your viewers kind of look around the room you're in right now, every object that's in there, it could be your desk, it could be the computer, the curtains, the furniture, even the drywall on your walls, it, has, it all has what's called embodied knowledge in it. There's just a massive amount of know-how that sits into how to make a sheet, you know, a four by eight sheet of yeah. drywall. I mean, it's a sophisticated thing. If you went to the drywall factory, you'd be like, oh my God, this is like an unbelievable process. And there's so much to know. It's, it's literally knowledge is at the core of everything that we hold near and dear. And, uh, you know, even... Even societies that don't have a sophisticated economy like this, I go to South America. <clears throat> I try to go like once a year and we do conservation stuff back to the Amazon. In the Amazon rainforests, we do a lot of conservation and in the Andes and the indigenous tribes down there, we're always lucky if we can hang out for a day or two with some indigenous group that yep. does not have this kind of economy. They've got a very different, much more ancient economy. But again, it's all driven by knowledge. They, they'll know every single plant in the forest, what's, what's good to eat, what will kill, kill you. you if you eat it? <laughs> yeah. What are the halluc what are the hallucinogens we can have a party with, you know, and and see and meet the gods on some kind of they know all that stuff. And uh in it, again, it's knowledge that allows them to exist in these in a place, you know, you and I wouldn't last a day or two down right. there. It's like it, I'd eat it, the wrong amazing. That'd be you definitely eat the wrong stuff. So <laughs> So at the high level, you know, I, I need to assure myself that I'm in an, in, uh, an industry that matters. And if you're in the knowledge industry in some way, uh, you are in the industry that kind of matters the most in a sense. Uh, I mean, it, it, they're all important out there. You know, they're, it's knowledge that allows us to, to keep the lights on. So the guys running the power plant, super important, but it is knowledge that allows them to do all of that stuff. Yeah. And uh, so I, I just kind of like starting up at that level. It's because it's because knowledge and learning are important that I uh, was so intrigued um, really with the first kind of uh, ideas I saw that would end up being the amplifier platform. Okay. I'd, I'd met a guy at UCLA who was a professor of education and he'd invented this uh, kind of wonderful uh, comp what we ended up calling confidence assessment. Okay. And his, uh, his assessment, it asked you, you know, it was, it's Socratic in a sense. I mean, Socrates had, had it right. Master Ask of lots of questions, master of mm -hmm. questions, some mind bogglingly, you know, tricky questions on yeah. occasion. He really loved to challenge his students. And we'll talk about difficulty in learning uh, maybe a little later on. It's something you want to have in uh in a learning experience it should feel a little difficult you should feel feel the challenge in it but um bruno had jim bruno professor bruno had invented this uh this confidence-based thing you you have to just you have to kind of uh you're assessed in what you know of course but then you also are asked to tell to kind of signify how certain you are in that information and that's a super interesting thing um it's 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 very pragmatic as well because um, think of confidence and certainty as the feeling in your brain. It's the, sometimes called the feeling of knowing that is going to cause you to act in the world. If you're confident in something, you're going to no, act. You're going to head out and do it. 
very likely to do it. If you feel a little hesitation, you know, some uncertainty, much less likely. And if you know you just have nothing's there, I am just ignorant on this thing. It's a gigantic knowledge gap. Uh, you're probably going to ask. You're definitely not going to act with confidence. Okay. And so you see, you can see that confidence has this really practical aspect of the way that we move through the world. And when I saw Bruno's uh, invention, which was um, just brand new. This is he. He put that together probably in the in the late '90s. He was working on that. Um, I thought I'd never seen anything like it before. And it should be a digital platform of okay. some sort. This assessment should be digital. And it turns out the confidence is it's it's um, asking you if you're certain when you kind of start off uh, with this great question, like tell me something that you were sure you knew it and you turned out to be, turned out to be wrong. You were incorrect. You were confident and incorrect. Yeah. Um, that there's a lot of that in the world. And when you're confronted, effect. <laughs> well, then there's the Dunning-Kruger effect, which is a fantastic thing. Uh, and in that, in that case, it's, um, it's this combination of, you really don't know maybe but just a little teeny bit of a domain, but you have massive confidence behind uh, what you think you know. What you think you know. You just don't know enough to know how little you, know you really how little know. You actually know. Yeah, yeah. And what happens is, is you go up the spectrum. I've had, I've been very, very fortunate to have dinner with some Nobel laureates, and I know some pretty amazing scientists. <clears throat> Those folks are real true experts in their domain. But they're extremely humble about information and knowledge that might be just right next to their domain. They will be, I'm, I'm not an expert there. You have to talk to my friend so-and-so. He really knows that area really well. Learning, uh, when you get to some, some level, you realize, boy, there is so much to learn. And uh, I, I have this narrow slice of expertise. It's the opposite of the Dunning-Kruger effect. You become yeah. humble about knowledge. And... Uh, yeah, it, it's a Dunning-Kruger is a fascinating phenomenon. It'd be fun to get one of those psychologists on your show at some I, point. I know, right? It, it would. I mean, I've had I've had a couple conversations where we dug into it a little bit about that. Where yeah. right, the further up the curve you go, actually, you learn how much you don't know, which actually makes you underassess your confidence. You know how Dunning first came up uh, upon the phenomenon that's now you know named after he, uh -huh. he and his associate Kruger Dunning Kruger he was reading a story in the paper one morning about a bank robber who'd uh, had a rather unsuccessful attempt at robbing a bank he'd uh, this bank robber had become convinced somehow that if he made up a certain kind of lemon juice formulation and covered his body in this lemon juice concoction he would be invisible to the cameras in the bank and and dunning is Very reading confident. the stories going man he was confident enough to go in and rob a bank with his stuff on him he that's how strongly he believed this and uh, and he started experimenting with the notion of a high amount of uh you know i I, kind of ignorance is the not necessarily stupid. That's a different thing. Just right. ignorant of the reality of things, and very confident at the same time. And and he's become, of course, very famous for that. Right. And and he's done us all a service because there's more of that in the world than we uh, we we care to imagine. Okay. One of the things Amplifier does is ferret that out. The platform. Right. It starts with uh, asking you, you know, and in any domain, our our business is now in. We've got a. a 
extremely robust healthcare practice. There's some, you know, multi-billion dollar systems that train their doctors and their nurses and their technicians in our platform. We have uh, these uh, call center business. Uh, it's in the what we call the performance side of our, our business, call centers, uh, airlines. Uh, call centers are enormous operations. I mean, there's some of these call center operations will have 20, 30,000 employees answering the, uh, the phones. They're having a you know, a little more of a difficult time right now. They don't, yeah. they're not all allowed to cluster together because we're in this uh, odd circumstance yeah. at the moment. But um, in all of those domains, the the thing that those managers are looking for is to, is to um, ferret out, to discover the confidently held misinformation okay. that might exist in the minds of their employees. And there's, there's, um, there's more of that sh surely related to Dunning-Kruger, but but uh, confidently held misinformation does show up for kind of a variety of reasons. There's just kind of classic forgetting. There's a thing called uh, interference that can take place when you go to retrieve a memory. Sometimes the uh, the memory that comes back out of storage isn't as uh, pristine as when it, it first okay. was formed. It, and it's coming with other baggage, if you will. And so sometimes... So some yeah. it just does. Retrieval is just not a perfect thing. Uh, the information in your head is a pattern of neurons. And when you go to find your way to that pattern that represents uh, information, it doesn't necessarily come back, especially over time, with the same fidelity that it, it was originally. So there's a couple of reasons that this can, can end up being the case, uh, that people can have conflict held misinformation. <clears throat> Sometimes the, uh, the information just changes. A doctor who learned something, you know, 15, 20 years ago, it, that was strong when he learned it in medical school, but you know processes and practices have changed. There's new techniques, and um, you can you can sometimes revert back to what was so at one time and have a lot of confidence in it. You have you still have a retrieval pathway back to that old information, and hence confidence, confident but wrong can show up once again. I have but a couple be, of this has to be yeah. rearing its ugly head then, especially right now when you look at. Um, you know, the, the amount of time, and this is a huge problem in our industry right now, is is the, ch the fact that skills are changing at a pace that is, is unprecedented, right, because of how things are changing. And so that misinformation based on, well, this is how it was, which may have been extremely accurate even two, three years ago, is not is not extremely accurate anymore. And that's speeding up. So I can see where that misinformation comes from, probably at a, at a pace that is accelerating more than anything. That's a great point. Yeah, because the pace of change is so uh, rapid now in this world. You know, and knowledge has never been more important. If you want to, given the fact that the robots are coming, yeah. you know, and AI is, is and coming. They're here. <laughs> and they're here. Uh, you know, uh, there's going to be some reskilling uh, at large scale that's necessary. And, and folks who do have misinformation, uh, confidently wielded in the world are uh, are going to be at some disadvantage. So the our platform, you know, we we love it for that reason. Kind of our our mission in life, to a very great extent, is to find and fix confidently held misinformation. Okay, so it's it, really like hunted out by through this hunted out confidence yeah. assessment is to say where is this in an organization yeah. in our in our employees. Because it's so dangerous. Confidence is, as we talked about earlier, it's this way that you kind of gauge whether or not you should act in the world. You know, the bank robber that got Dunning and Kruger onto that thread, he was 
he acted out of his confidence. Confidence is the thing. It's some. It's a mental thing, sometimes called the feeling of knowing. Uh, it's sometimes called metacognition. It's thinking about your thinking. Uh, so confidence is just this critical thing. Knowing the wrong thing is one thing, but being confident in it and then acting on it, that is something else. And boy, no organization, no hospital wants to have that floating around. And if you if you pull up that one graphic, I'll show you what we've discovered in the world. It's it's kind of astonishing. Okay. Yeah, that's the one. <clears throat> this is um, this is amplifier at pretty large scale. I mean, in all of these cases, we're talking about statistically really significant numbers. Um, it's going to be you know it's going to be a very for... high risk of making a mistake. Right. Yeah. There's some serious consequences associated with making a mistake on these. Yeah. So at the assessment phase and amplifier, this is where people are starting out. You know, they're we're going to find this and fix it in amplifier. That's amplifier's main uh, kind of mission. The reason that technology exists is to discover that red. <clears throat> excuse me, that confidently held misinformation and the uncertainty. You can see that all people are also uh, sometimes just not sure. And uh, the green you would call, you could call it mastery or could call it confident and correct. That's where you're trying to get everybody to. And that's what our platform is designed to do. But so this will be- The first step is being yeah. able to really dig in, right? Through this assessment piece, it's about digging into where the gaps actually exist. It's almost a bit of a needs analysis on the front end of things. Is that, a, that's, is that fair? It's fair. And uh, the platform is, we're adaptive. You know, you've heard uh, the, a lot, the, everybody's adaptive a, an adaptive platform, right? Uh, we adapt to this situation. Okay. Uh, this is kind of our primary, uh, primary thing we want to discover and make all of this green. Okay. Uh, it, it's... It's one thing to be just ignorant and just to not know. That's kind of an innocuous state of mind. You're not going to do too much damage if you just don't know something. Uh, you And you're not going to act. There's no confidence behind you with which to act to go rob, <laughs> rob yeah. the bank with lemon juice. Behind you. Yeah. But if you're, uh, you know, if you're a doctor and you've got some confidently held misinformation, you are at some great risk of causing some harm. And in the in the healthcare profession, a, a, uh, Christopher, you may or may not know this kind of a rather astonishing statistic, but uh, a mistake in a hospital is the third leading cause of death in the United States right now. Maybe you've heard that before. I think in order, it's cancer, heart disease, which just switched last year, uh, oddly, okay. used to be heart disease, now cancer, heart disease, and then uh, mistake in a hospital. That, There's uh, that serious consequences. <laughs> serious consequences. So you, you see that misinformation running at you know kind of nearly thirty percent when someone's first in amplifier, and uh, you go, boy, there's it's a it's a dangerous place to be in a hospital. You just do not want that to happen to you. And it's this kind of universal thing. It's you can see oil rig workers, and doctors, and pilots, and hospital techs, and call center agents. They all everybody has some um, at, you know some some proportion this misinformation. Yeah, yeah. So that's our that's our thing. And uh, these are the generalizations. There's one more slide we can just look at real quick, and then maybe we'll go back to you and I. These are the details of uh, doctors and pilots. The, these are individuals, and uh, what I want to kind of get across here is just the incredible var human variation that shows up 
uh, when com someone is first uh, coming to Amplifier. You can see uh, it, the doctor at the top in that uh, upper left uh, quadrant. Uh, he's got his information is about 50 or 50 percent or so okay. uh, confidently held but incorrect and there's another doctor in the same platform probably on the same day who's just a master of that domain and this will be some it'll be some discrete topic in uh in medicine it will be you know it'll be uh, how to identify and treat sepsis for yeah. example well, like the one is there pediatric sepsis so sepsis in children yeah, this one's pediatric sepsis is exactly right. And this will be, you know, it, it'll be a series of children's hospitals and you'll just go, well, how can how can that kind of variation exist? But the the platform is showing the uh, the educators and the managers at this hospital just how uh, wide the problem kind of can be. We have true experts in pediatric sepsis and then we have some docs who really need some help. The platform is designed. It's designed to adapt to help with that misinformation help bring dr 814 closer to where dr 269 is yeah in fact in alignment and, and misinformation you know from the cognitive psychology standpoint it because it's confidently held um it is a little difficult to eradicate it if you think uh in terms of neurons which our companies kind of um we're immersed in uh, in both neuroscience and cognitive psychology. From the neuroscience standpoint, misinformation is a strong pattern of neurons. Somehow your brain is able to kind of send up, it's not totally understood the neuroscience of this. There's some clues as to how it works, but you get this feeling, a strong signal that says, I got this, okay. right? That's the sense of confidence and certainty that you, you have, sometimes called the feeling of knowing. Um, and it's the thing you act on. Uh, that pattern of neurons is difficult to eradicate. So uh, in all of the refreshers that the, uh, the platform will then offer up, that doctor has that experience. He discovers his misinformation. He might experience when he is confronted with his misinformation, you know, here's, <laughs> and, and the platform tells you pretty quickly you're misinformed. Feedback and learning comes a little bit later, but he'll be He'll experience a thing often called hypercorrection, okay. where you're just, you know, you had the experience with the song. It did not end in those words. Uh, yeah, we are the champions, mind blown. You kind of don't forget that, right? Right. And that's the beauty of this thing called hypercorrection. Like, what? It's this <laughs> the shock. elevated kind of sense of shock. And uh, the learning is pretty profound uh, when you're in that state. It's, it's a great, uh, it's just this great uh, psychological state to be in. You have to kind of be alert and attentive and pumped up a little bit, not too much, to really be in a, a great state for learning. So the amplifier platform is trying all the time to keep people in this in state, state of uh, of high awareness back to the psychology again it's it's um you you cannot have people falling asleep and learning it just will not happen there's this very sweet spot where they're kind of activated in technical terms activations high there's certain neurotransmitters that are kind of up a little bit if you can get yourself into that alert you feel um you feel uh uh, no threats necessarily. The environment is benign, but you're alert. That is the ultimate state to yeah. be in for learning. So, so you want to push it. You want to push it to a level where you're alert, but not almost like on the defense. If, if right? yeah. is that where it goes too far, where you're almost in a fear state? That's a great, a great question. Uh, the fear state is not good for learning. It's just not. Um, 
there is, you know, I must say that there's a, a kind of emotional experience. Emotion ties in hugely to learning. Uh, it, it turns out that when things are emotional, we tend to learn them. There's a neuroscientist named Joseph Ledoux, a beautiful book uh, called Synaptic Self. Really um, <clears throat> interesting book in the sense that when you read a book like that, you're, you're literally discovering its self-discovery. Okay. You have a brain. Here's how it works. Here's many of the the, the things that uh, uh, go right and can go wrong. And Ledoux says this amazing thing in uh, Synaptic Self. He says, emotion is the way that a nervous system assigns value to the incoming sensory information. And that's like an amazingly uh, powerful thing to say, assigns value, meaning kind of what are you going to pay attention to? What do you care about? Value. And um, so when there's emotion, a little emotion attached to, to uh, things, we do tend to pay attention and we tend to remember as well. So, uh, you know, um, you could you can argue that uh, something where there's too much emotion is is how this thing called PTSD, you know, uh, post-traumatic stress disorder yep. shows up because you have an experience, the emotions are just overwhelming. It forms a memory in a sense, a learning. This is a learning moment. And the memory is so strong, you kind of can't turn it off very well anymore. It is always with you. You'd love to forget this, you know, the battlefield is full of uh, yeah. post-traumatic stress because these poor guys and some gals experience these horrible things and they cannot get the memory of that thing out of their head. So this is emotion. This is too much emotion. This is a nervous system assigning way too much value to this hyper-emotional thing. So in a in a learning platform, you clearly don't want that. No. But you do want you do want to move in the direction of just alertness. Okay. And so our platform does these things, like you know, shows you your confidently held misinformation, which keeps you in this state of alertness, which is just the sweet spot for learning. Okay. So one of the questions that came in from Angela on this is so in terms of this, right? So it's diagnosing where this confidently held misinformation is. What what is guiding it to make sure that you know it's it's assessing the right things like how is that actually being incorporated into it so that it's it's making sure it's making an accurate assessment right so um in uh in say our healthcare practice we build all the content sure. uh by topic so that pediatric sepsis uh those individuals we looked at earlier that'd be a pediatric sepsis okay. course that we would have built um the uh, pilots, the aerodynamics yeah. training that you see up there, there's like 2,500 pilots in that. And you go, whoa, <laughs> look, look at the human variation there between the, the pilot at the top with massive misinformation and the pilot down below who's a master of aerodynamics. I do uh, not want to be on pilot 691's plane. Yeah, right? it's strange, <laughs> isn't it? I mean, it's, this, is the, this is the same course. This would be material that was... Uh, uh, supplied by the FAA. Okay. And then I think this company took those materials and converted them into our platform. Okay. So the content is coming from, you know, great sources. The pediatric sepsis course would have been built with the experts in, in the country on pediatric sepsis. Okay. Uh, the, there's a thing called in the lower right, there's a thing, there's 3,700 3, nurses in a course called CLABSI. 
That's again built by Clapsy, I should just say. Uh, no one knows what Clapsy is. It's, it's a kind of infection. It's, uh, it's a central line associated bloodstream infection. Okay. And it happens if you've got a port in, um, you know, a big, sometimes you'll have a port in the hospital so they can uh, infuse in fairly large amounts of some kind of medication as opposed to like, you know, the little intravenous, uh, intravenous drip uh, process in a vein here. This will be a bigger port. It, that's the central line. And it's in like a big uh, vein that's going to your heart. So you can move this thing all through your body uh, rapidly. But central lines uh, can get infected. And shockingly so, it's thought that somewhere around 30,000 Americans will die every year from a Clabsy infection. Okay. I mean, that's like, that's as many as will uh, not, you know, will will right. succumb to a car accident. Uh, so they're really big numbers that you see in hospitals. So solving that problem with this course, and again, you, you just see an amazing amount of misinformation in one nurse and uh, an expertise, okay. what you want in another nurse. And so, so you go, that's part of the yeah. content building, right? In that's short, the content part side of the it. content building where you're saying, okay, we need to make sure we have the right information in here so that we are kind of going out and assessing where people are today. Yeah. In some cases, the, the customer will uh, build it in our authoring platform. I mean, there's a very robust authoring platform. It's WYSIWYG. It's got all the, all, the, all the tools that you would see in something like Word, for example. So you can author all that content there. You can kind of assign uh, who's going to be taking the course, who's going to be managing the, the people in the course. All that stuff is done in authoring. And uh, oftentimes, our customers will, will author the uh, the the course uh and sometimes will be responsible for finding experts to build okay. say a healthcare course okay sorry my my nine-year-old is trying to ask me a question so I oh <laughs> <laughs> okay so that that's extremely helpful in terms of just kind of understanding how that comes to comes to play so let's let's keep digging into some of these things because this is fascinating right when you start digging into the cognitive psychology and neuroscience behind this what are some other so we talked about this this confidence this confidently misheld information what other types of you know things lead to you know issues when it breaks down in learning um right so the the way that the uh the the platform works it's kind of in two parts in a sense okay. we start with the assessment component where we're measuring what you know and your confidence behind it that tells us an awful lot the system then starts adapting very quickly to um your uncertainty and your confidently held misinformation and it's going to start to focus just on that area if you come in you know kind of a master of a domain you're going to get out of the system very very quickly but if you show us confidently held misinformation, especially that, we're going to keep you in that topic for quite a while until by the end of the, the uh, amplifier session, which usually runs, you know, 25 minutes, 30 minutes, sometimes a little more, sometimes a little less, depending on how expert you are. Um, we're going to then throw you into learning. So it'll be the, the second phase is feedback and learning. We, we uh, another great cognitive trick we do, we hold back uh, the feedback. So you know when you kind of signify your confidence and correctness in the assessment phase, we'll tell you that you were dead wrong or you got that right, but we won't tell you much more than that in the first instance. We want to kind of 
again, to keep your alertness level up, to keep your curiosity level up, we're going to hold that out for five or 10 minutes until we show you. Okay, uh, so that's, that's counterintuitive, right? Because it is counterintuitive. Like, hey, I tell you something that you realize is wrong or you thought you knew, now you realize you don't. The initial response intuitively would be, oh, well, now let me just tell you yep. exactly what the right information is. Yep, yep, yep. It's fun. It's And again, it just comes from the science. Um, we have this kind of wonderful science board. The um, the experiments that were done by uh, by you know researchers like our guys and others in the country shows that if you uh, give feedback, it's most effective if you delay feedback a little bit. Um, you're kind of creating um, a space uh, in which um, the question kind of is still in your in your brain and to to some extent, and you know it's there, and your alertness level is up. Um, some space is going by between the time you answered the question, the time you're getting feedback, not a huge amount of space. It's going to be five, 10 minutes, but alertness level is high. And when you get that feedback um, in this spaced kind of a, a micro spacing, if you will, it's not like days of spacing, but a few minutes, it just, uh, the empirical evidence is it works better to create a more robust memory of the correct information. Okay. Yeah, well, I mean that that to me is is fascinating when you think about it because again, it's it's not intuitive, right? And I mean, yep. if you think about so frequently in the way we design learning, we design learning that okay, even even a basic quiz, right? You break down a basic quiz, normally you pick the wrong answer, you immediately are given what the right answer is. Yeah, yeah. It, the um and and we give of course much more than uh, than just the right answer. Right. There's right, robust yeah. explanations, <laughs> interactive fundamental level. That's yeah, how, yeah, yeah. Even at the fundamental yeah. level, that's historically how you approach it. The data is astonishing on feedback. If you, uh, as I recall from those experiments, um, if you if you show someone that they're just right or wrong, that's a certain kind of feedback, but surely not very robust. If you if you wait a little bit, show them. Uh, whether they're right or wrong, and give them a full explanation. The difference in memory a couple of weeks out is is around five hundred percent. It's like mind-bogglingly like huge. Of better. No, no. Some of these effects are profoundly huge effects. You read, you know, you read the paper and go, "Okay, I got to read that again," because I think he's saying five hundred percent differential here. And some of those papers are a little dense, but that is the case. I mean, it, you if if you do this. Uh, right, you can see those kinds of huge effects. You just do not want to miss the science and and miss out on something as powerful as as that. So, you know, we were very lucky. We've got just an incredible uh, science advisory board. I'd say the chairman of our science advisory board is a guy named Robert Bjork. He's he's really the the in uh, a sense the godfather of kind of modern learning cognitive psychology. They're all cognitive psychologists, but there's a very strong branch of cognitive psychology that just has to do with learning and and that's it. That's their their area of expertise. And these guys do well. You know, one of our one of our uh, guys was the chair of psychology at Harvard, but but learning uh, is is his domain. Bob York was the chair of psychology at UCLA. So it's a very well-respected uh, branch of, of cognitive psycho of psychology uh, in that they, these guys are uh, making a huge difference in the world with, uh, with their discoveries. And what they like about us is very much about us is that we're taking their research and, and applying it uh, at very yeah. large scale. Bringing it to life. 
Yeah, they love that. They love that. So from what you've talked about so far, uh, you know, it really sounds like a lot of what the platform's doing, right? It's adaptive, which we, we've talked about. So it's, it's changing the experience of, of what someone's going through. But ultimately, everyone, everything is trying to push people to this ideal state of where learning happens best, right? Where you said, you know, if you're not, you need to be alert, but you don't want to be too far gone that that you actually yep. have the risk of either just not remembering anything or having a, a a PTSD type memory where it's like you can't get it out. Right. Okay. Yeah. No, that is, that is exactly right. So how does uh, so, it, how do you how do you how have you been able to assess like where this range is and how do you keep a learner are there other things that happen to help keep the learner in that state? We do our our very best. I mean the platform is is designed to uh, take every trick we've ever uh, discovered in cognitive psychology that helps people um, learn and especially create durable memories. I mean, learning and memory, they're very kindred uh, notions, right? Uh, if, if you learn something one day, you'd really like to be able to remember it weeks or months or ideally years later. That's a durable memory. And um, we do our very best to uh, in the platform to cause that to happen. We've read widely and deeply in this area, but people still are, um, they're variable. And uh, another thing we measure in the platform is we measure how folks are struggling to learn. Are they, uh, are they in the game and learning well and paying attention and alert or are they elsewhere? You know, and, um, and you, you, you we're working on some ways to be able to tell whether or not that's what we would call a state, a temporary state. You know, someone's just having a rotten day. My girlfriend just left me. Mom, you know, passed away last week. People get in states and uh, emotional places that they've got other issues besides learning temporarily, hopefully. And then there's the notion of a trait. Is this someone who just doesn't give a damn about this, <laughs> this place that they work or they're learning? Uh, they just are in... Uh, in this kind of permanently bad space, um, an organization kind of wants to know uh, who that is. So um, when someone struggles, we at, and they struggle mightily, usually um, in our reporting dashboard, uh, a manager, uh, you know, uh, a chief nursing officer in a hospital, uh, the head hospitalist who watches all the docs that are in a hospital, the head of the, of the pilots association, they'll look at um, who's struggling and often go have a chat with that person okay. and find out what is going on. In, and these can be, you know, kind of what's going on in your life conversations. And that's a great thing to be able to point out to someone. You do not want um, pilots or doctors or nurses in, in hopefully in it's just a temporary state doing yeah. things where they could cost lives. Yeah. So it's, it's cool to be able to kind of uh, give that kind of some of our, some of our uh, uh, managers and executives who see what how their workforce is, uh, uh, you know, kind of the knowledge at scale in their workforce, they'll see that for the first time, and they'll they'll say it's kind of like looking into the neurons of my workforce, and yeah. to some extent ways. that that's kind of right. Many ways it is. So I'm curious with this one because this is right. This is one of the one of the topics that I a lot of times talk about is the fact that when we look at learning 
in many cases, we've historically looked at it in the silo, right? We're, we're very focused on the learning component without thinking about how does that tie into the broader, you know, talent capability, talent, things like that. And what you just talked about is one of those things, right? Where we can start to look into the neurons of the organization and say, hey, where are people, you know, right now? Or what are some of these things? I'm curious with what's going on right now, right? It's a perfectly relevant thing. And I know this has been a conversation I've had multiple times where you look at the fact that in many cases, the entire world is in a state of crisis right now, right? And the impact that that's likely having on their ability to learn, to even be able to learn. And I'm just curious, you know, have you in the, in these discussions you've seen, have you been able to see, because now you have some of these looks into some of that stuff. Have you been able to see how that's playing? Oh, it's a super interesting question. The, uh, the time we're in, uh, you know, and if you're, if you're watching this a year from now, hopefully we're not in this time anymore. Yeah, hopefully, hopefully a year from now. But we're all sequestered. I'm in my bedroom and, and not at the office. And yeah, we'll, uh, do, we'll do a one year anniversary. We'll both still be sitting right here. Yeah. <laughs> the, the, I hope that's not the case, you know, and, and, and in the developing world, of course, this problem is going to be even worse, but the, um, I would say that the, the, Distance learning, um, you know, we we think it's for us. I mean, we're committed to the notion that doing learning on a computer um, is profoundly wonderful in the sense that the the algorithms can discover really interesting things about each individual learner, the states, the traits, the misinformation, the uncertainty. It's different for everybody, and so no teacher it's just impossible for a human being, a teacher in a classroom, say, to kind of understand their students at that level. So even though we're in this time when, you know, everybody's doing distance everything, it's social distancing, it's distance learning, it's it's distance Zoom meetings and all of that, um, the learning component is going to come out of this, I think, really strong. A few industries are going to do, you know, kind of uh, well uh, from this uh, kind of weird moment that we're having, only because people are going to discover even more how great that was. Maybe I won't get on a jet and fly to that meeting in Boston next week because it's so easy. I could just hang out here and you know have the same save, have pretty much the same experience. I th- I think I think the the country's going to shift a little bit in that regard. And with with distance learning and a platform like Amplifier and others, we're surely not the only platform out there, but it is they can do things that no teacher can ever do. The human components. Great. I mean, I hope we get back to classes uh, some some uh, at some point, because, you know, the the human touch is a, is a lovely thing. And uh, the classroom is a great thing. Our platform gets used all the time. Uh, we have like, I don't know, probably a a million college kids every year go through the amplifier platform. It's used widely in higher ed and um, uh, professors use it to, uh, you know, they've just done a lecture and now they can go see their kids uh, in amplifier that night, answer questions in the exact topic that he was lecturing around. And he can see very, he or she can see very clearly what parts of the lecture did not land. Okay. How could kids still be misinformed? I said that exact thing. Well, you probably didn't say it very clearly. Right. Or they came in with some misconceptions that are very strong, and you're going to have to work harder to get rid of those misconceptions. Yeah. So that is a, it's a beautiful tool in concert with uh, the classroom. And it, it turns professors, uh, you know, and like I say, we're in higher ed. 
but would turn any teacher that uses it into a better teacher if they did, you know, if they use it in concert with their their classes. Well, and that brings up two things that I, I think is a relevant topic to talk about, which actually we probably had we started there. Who knows? We might have ended the show and never even talked about the other thing. So maybe it's good. It's coming up at the end. But, you know, I think there is this. Um, so there's two things. First, you know, the the exciting part to me about the data behind these things, and this is very exciting for a lot of the learning technology is you look at the traditional classroom. And one of the things that a lot of times you hear is, well, but but as a facilitator, I, you know, I can read the room. I can read where people are at, which to a degree is true, but this is that times a thousand. And yeah. you, you have the human component where you may be as a facilitator operating off misinformation. So you might be saying, well, this is how I read somebody who's struggling. <laughs> it's like, right. no, they're just bored because they already know. And you're still droning on about the same thing that that you, you've lost that state. And so I think that's where when you look at this, it's like, no, this is an opportunity to assess where people are at factually and based on data, not yeah. gut feel or yeah. you know, intuition or you know personal experience, which all carry tremendous bias. I think the other thing that's really interesting about this is, you know, as this digital movement hits in learning and development, uh, I, I frequently am in conversations where people are, are almost at odds. Right? There's this battle of, well, it's digital. Well, it's it's you know the human component is pers- you know is critical, and I would say it's both. You know, like you just described in that use case, it's not, oh, well, the role of the facilitator is gone. Well, no, it's absolutely not. The role is absolutely changing. And if anything, you're becoming a, you're augmenting what you're doing with technology to create a superior experience yep. around that. And and the, the use case you use there in higher ed, where you can say, hey, now you can know what actually resonated with your students. You can learn what didn't, and you can make data-driven decisions on where you need to do better or go deeper with people to actually ultimately, yep. I like the analogy of, of your data, right? Bring everybody to the green. So th- so there isn't that variance. Yeah. yeah the, your, your first point, you've made a couple great points in there. The first one, which um, in which you said that, uh, you know, some some of us think we can read the room and kind of understand people. People are very, very hard to understand. There's a recent book by uh, Malcolm Gladwell called Talking to Strangers. And it is very hard to know uh, where people are at, honestly. We have, you know, we're human beings. We have all kinds of ways of camouflaging the truth about us. Exactly. We don't, we don't want people to know that we're misinformed. <laughs> I mean, at all costs. Right. I mean, if don't, anything, we try and protect right? that. Yeah, try and protect that. We all have, uh, everybody has uh, an ego of some sort. It's why people don't like to raise their hands in class because asking the question kind of makes you look like, the perception is you might look less than uh, not that smart or misinformed or uninformed. Um, But of course you should ask, everybody in class has got the same question burning in their head. The thing about Amplifier is it can discover a lot of that stuff without that kind of human uh, interaction problem where you think you can read strangers, read people in the class, very hard to do. But the computer can actually weirdly does a better job of that in some respects. Well, it can do it at a speed and scale too. I mean, even if you were the best people reader, You can only do it at a, at a speed and scale of a human limitation, which put the computer on it. You can do it now faster and more efficiently than anything else. 
Yeah, I'm sure you've heard of Bloom's taxonomy and Benjamin Bloom and all his goals for learning. And, you know, he discovered that personal tutors, if you have your very own personal tutor, you can you can do a couple sigma kind of change in uh, in kind of what you know and the effectiveness of your learning. Well, these computers now, these adaptive systems are those tutors. It's kind of Benjamin Bloom's dream coming true yeah. right now in real time to the world where everybody can have their own personal tutor who understands them to some extent and understands the the issues they need the most help with that's fantastic yeah well and that and that gets to you know one of the concepts that that pops up i mean the buzzword around is personalization um and and i think one of the things that often we've struggled with in l d is it's not that we it's not that we didn't want to personalize right you, you talk about the fact bloom would be you know ecstatic looking at what we can do now with technology. And it's not that, you know, before we we intentionally were like, well, we don't want to personalize this for people or we want, we want people to suffer through things that <laughs> we want them to suffer through stuff they already know. That was never the mentality. It was a limitation of what we could do, right? Because to your point about having an individual tutor, I think anybody in our industry would say that'd be ideal. Like if we had enough trainers in the world to work one-on-one -on -one with every one of our employees and truly get to know their needs and do that, we would absolutely do that. Unfortunately, that would require so many resources. It's it's just not feasible. But with technology, you're able to do that at the speed and scale that's required, which to me is, you know, if really learners are at the center of everything, this whole concept of where technology is taking us to a truly personal level is is fantastic. Yeah, I I think that's well said. The uh, even though it's technology, you can infuse technology with all of these uh, human um, highest potential characteristics. I mean, we've looked to cognitive psychology for our guidance. That's a that's a human centered science, right? Psychology is all about human beings. And, uh, you know, and we learned enough from psychology, this very human centered science to put it into our learning platform. That that means it's kind of a humanistic platform to a great extent. It really is, as you just said, centered around human beings. Doesn't have to be a human being doing the work, you know, with massive data available to us and this massive personalization and adaptability, the machine can do a lot of that work. Even better if you can then have a human being who can, you know, at the elbow, as we say, kind of guide people in this very personal way to get them out of, say, struggle, to help them with some personal things that uh, things in their in their lives. It, the human touch has got to do that. I don't think any any computer is going to be, you know, a whole AI pilot kind of guiding me in a therapeutic kind of sense anytime soon. That's going to be mano a mano person to person for quite some time yeah but boy you can you can discover and help uh in so many ways just in the, staying in the digital domain maybe not all but an incredible amount yeah well and i think that's just you know going back to that whole piece around the human-centered design is that you know it, it is and, and the current situation you look at right is another example of how critical um, the, the human component is in this. You look at how technology right now with what's going on, in many regards, we're being shown how important human connection is by yeah. being disconnected and technology is allowing us to bring us together. So it's actually been a little bit of a Petri dish, I think, as, as you look at what's happening right now and the way technology can actually be human-centered 
if used properly. And I think that's the big thing is, is how it's being used. So it's, it's been really interesting to hear how you're taking some of that um, and, and building it into Amplifier. We, we, you know, given the circumstance we're in, we very rapidly with our healthcare practice, we're able to build a, a co- course for the frontline uh, caregivers who are at, you know, tremendous risk to themselves right now. Uh, we built that course and um, it is, uh, you know, it's got deployed really fast to our healthcare alliance. And it's, imagine being on the front line with, with folks with this virus right now, how risky that is. You cannot make a mistake, a confidently held mistake. Uh, no Dunning-Kruger effects are allowed on those front lines, right? You have to really know how to protect yourself and your patients and your family when you get home from this virus. So um, it's it's been gratifying for us to, to build that course in this time. Again, very human-centered. It's all about saving lives through uh, through knowledge, having the correct knowledge of, of how to act in this extraordinarily dangerous situation for frontline caregivers. Yeah. Well, and, and I think that right there kind of highlights the importance of this type of technology and, and really, because if you look at it, it, like I said, it's a bit of a Petri dish and an experiment because look how quickly the knowledge we've had about COVID-19 has changed in weeks, right? right? Yeah. It's changed in weeks. What went from, well, this is how to handle it, or this is the way to do it. That has changed almost overnight. And so yeah. that confidently misheld information is, is there. I mean, you see it, I literally see it in the news day after day where you go, people are yeah. making decisions on yesterday's news. And that yesterday's news is going to cost lives if, if we don't root it out yeah. and turn it to green. Yeah, it's a, again a, a great point. You know, uh, we we started off. I started off talking about knowledge as being at the at the center of everything we hold near and dear. The incredible amounts of wealth that we take for granted that are around us. But uh, you know, it's knowledge of this virus, for example, that we're gonna we are gonna master it, and uh, and the knowledge will get uh, spread around in this super effective way, and will we'll build a vaccine and all that. It's all based on on learning and knowledge. I mean, all of that is being driven. As I said earlier, it's always at the core of all the, all the good things that happen and getting a handle on this thing will be a good thing. And we will, we will do it. Yeah. Well, going back to your visual, I've been saying, you know, from the beginning of this, what is most dangerous about this thing is we didn't have that know-how at the center of it. Right. Yeah. So we were operating in this world where we were making our best guesses at what to do without (laughs) know-how around it. And so as we build that know-how at the core of that model, suddenly it will not be as big of a threat. So, yeah, we're sadly a little late to it. Uh, There was a, I think I told you earlier, I'd sold a company to Bill Gates a few years ago and Bill has been at the center of, uh, of, trying to educate us about pandemics for years now. He gave a famous TED Talk in 2015. Yeah. Everybody should go see Gates' TED Talk. He's pre- he predicted, you know, five years ago, exactly what we're in the middle of now. So knowledge was there. I think just there's been a failure to kind of really recognize that we should have been acting on that knowledge for, for quite some time now. Yeah, yeah. We're a little late to the party, but uh, we're we're definitely at the party. We're... <laughs> 
Yeah. And like we said, hopefully a year from now, when we, when we do this again, we've, we've moved from our chairs and been able to, to go do something else. Yeah. Yeah. So. Yeah. Yeah, yeah. Well, Charles, this has been honestly a, a fascinating discussion. Um, I've really appreciated your time. I know you're two hours behind me, so it was an early morning uh, to, to come live. And I know this is the first time that you've done this type of setup. So fun. I appreciate you. I appreciate you being here. Uh, hopefully everybody watching. I know there were a lot of comments coming in. You know, this was helpful uh, for you, one, to learn about Amplifier and how their technology works, but also just to think differently about the way people learn and the way our brains work and all the different connections in there to be more effective in what we do and the way technology can actually make us more human centric. So thank you very much for being here, Charles. Um, I appreciate it. And hopefully this won't be the last time we talk. Uh, it's been a pleasure, Christopher. I'd love to do it again with you sometime. All, all right. the best out there. All right. Thanks, everybody. And have a great weekend.